Today we're uh, concluding our series that we've simply titled, What Are We Doing Here? And as a way of walking through the series of figuring out what we're supposed to be about as we move into this new year together, we've been looking at Jesus and the reality that Jesus' life was formed around three relationships, simply up, in, and out, we could call it. And, and our symbol is a way of reminding us of those three relationships that need to be evident in our lives as well, to walk in health and strength. And so at the center of our symbol is the cross, which reminds us of that up relationship, that just as Jesus walked in intimacy with his Father, we're invited through Christ to know and walk with God. Secondly, the circle of our symbol reminds us that we're to walk in fellowship with one another, to love others in such a way that the world would know it markedly sets us apart. We're to walk in fellowship. And then thirdly, the arrows of our symbol are a way of reminding that us of just as Jesus reached out to those around him with the good news of his coming kingdom, so we are to go out to all those around us with the message of Jesus. So in previous weeks, we've looked at that up and in dimension. And if you weren't here with us, you can either listen on iTunes if you want to catch up to those messages or watch it on our website at southviewchurch.com if that would be a help to you. But today we're focusing on the arrows, on out, and what that looks like for us. How do we, in this year, go out? How do we share the good news of Christ and his kingdom with, with those around us? You know, you can use different terms for what it's called. It can either be called living missionally, expanding the kingdom, personal evangelism. Whatever term you use, how do we do that? You know, I realize that for some of you who are here, you're, you're here and you're, maybe you're just beginning to consider Jesus just to see what life with him is about. And, and you really haven't decided if you want to put your faith and hope in him, to, to follow him. So I know it, it might feel kind of odd for me to be talking today and us to be focusing on how we share about Christ with others. And, and if that describes you, for one, I just want you to know we are so glad you're here and want this to be a place where you can ask those kind of questions about Jesus and the life he offers. But as we walk today, kind of through this focus today, I, I hope that what I share will both give you a picture of the wonder of what Jesus offers us, and also help you give a sense of why we would be so passionate about letting others know about him. Because we're called to that. But I know this as well. There is an internal struggle that, that many of us have with going out with the message, with the good news of Jesus. And, and I know that we can have many reasons for feeling hesitant about it. And you might internally feel like, oh, uh, I, I'm kind of afraid of that. I, I feel inadequate, I feel ill-equipped. Or you might feel like, I, I've tried it before, it just doesn't work for me. You, you might feel it's intimidating. You might feel like, I'm just not wired to talk to people about that kind of stuff. Or you might even feel like, that's not my job. I give tithes and offerings, so you do it, Clyde. I don't know. But I want you to know this. You're, you're not alone in those feelings. Interesting what Rick Richardson writes about this. Listen to what he said. The time has come to examine, perhaps jettison, our old paradigms and pictures of evangelism. 
The time has come to reform how we picture and practice sharing the good news about Jesus. The time has come in part because we live in a different day. People today are spiritual but not dogmatic. They want to know that God is real and not merely reasonable. They are looking for stories and experiences and connections to God more than logic and proof and reasons for God. Okay, so today, how then do we go out? Now, the reality is this. I mean, some people in the body of Christ, they they are blessed and gifted to go out. They're they're gifted evangelists, right? I have a friend in our church family who who just just so naturally turns kind of any conversation uh, towards Christ and, and people respond to him. I mean, he's got a gifting in that. But today, I want to consider some principles kind of for the rest of us, all right? Those of us who say we we aren't gifted evangelists. And I want to suggest in this, I want to suggest four shifts that we can make in, in how we reach out, how we evangelize, how we're arrows to the world around us. And I know this, we could spend a week on each one of these shifts, but we're not going to. And I also am concerned with this. I I so don't want this to be just kind of a detached theoretical study. So before we even look at those four shifts together, can you do this for me? Would you just bring to the forefront of your mind that the face of a person, coworker, neighbor, friend, whatever it would be, the face of a person who you are longing to see come to faith in Jesus? Can you just bring them to your mind for a moment? Can you do that? Just picture him or her. Okay. That's who we're talking about reaching today, all right? That's who we're talking about. So let's look at four shifts that we need to make in reaching them, all right? Four shifts. And the first shift, I think, is this. I think it's a shift... From, from leading with words to leading with our actions. I want you to remember these, so can we just read this together? Will you read the phrase with me? From leading with words to leading with actions. What do we mean by that? Well, this is what we read in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this young pastor named Timothy, and this is what we read. And friends, this is the word of God. And it, and it says in verse 5, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, this got kind of interesting here. As far as what we know from Scripture, Timothy didn't seem to have the gift of evangelist. We know he was blessed as a pastor, as a teacher. But even though evangelism wasn't his primary gifting, Paul still encouraged him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Now, I don't know if that word carries much for you, but the word evangelism in the original Greek that we get it from, it literally means being a messenger of good news. And so really in this, similar to Timothy, know this, you and I might not feel like we're spiritually gifted in evangelism, but we're still called to do the work of an evangelist. Okay, so when we think of that, now consider this. When you think of doing the work of evangelists, about being a witness for Jesus, 
I kind of think our first question tends to be, when we think of doing that work, our first question tends to be something like this. Okay, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to say? And, and actually, I tell you, I, I think that reflects a misunderstanding we tend to have about evangelism. We, we tend to ask, what am I supposed to say? Because we tend to think that evangelism is firstly about our either arguing for or verbally convincing someone else about the good news of Jesus. But I'd suggest from Scripture, friends, that perhaps the first question we should be asking when considering how, how do we evangelize, how do we live missionally, is not really what am I supposed to say, but rather, how, how am I supposed to live? I think that's the first question. Because really, our, our first witness to, uh, about the reality of Christ, especially in this day, is not really our arguments or our proofs or our words. Understand, it's our actions. It's the way we live life. Now, certainly, I know this. There are times where, just as First Peter exhorts us, where we need to be able to say and give the reason for the hope that lies within us. We do. We need to verbally express that. But I think we often need to begin, not with words, but with our actions. Remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus giving guidance here, and this is what he says, his words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 and 16. Let me read. And, and Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Church, my followers, you are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Then verse 16, in the same way, how do we do that? Let your light shine before others so they may see what? Say the phrase. Your good works. They may see your good works, and by that, by that give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's how I want your light to shine. So, so let's just consider a question today. Think about this. Why should those around us really listen to anything we say if, if in our words we're declaring the good news of Christ, but in our actions, we're not living at all how Christ called us to live? Why should they listen to us? Let me read an extended quote from Richard Rohr. He writes this. It seems to me that it is a minority that gets the true and full gospel. We just keep worshiping Jesus and arguing over the right way to do it. And certainly we are to worship and give praise to Jesus. But the amazing thing is that Jesus never once said, worship me. Rather, Jesus said repeatedly, what? Follow me. Follow me. Live life the way I do. Christianity is a lifestyle, a way of being in the world that is simple, nonviolent, shared, and loving. However, we made it into a clever religion in order to avoid the lifestyle itself. One could thus be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, and vain, and still claim to believe that Jesus is their personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. The suffering on this planet is too great. Hmm. So how do you think we're doing on this one? And really, this might be an area in your life as you're reflecting on this where you particularly need to pray, well, Father, would you, would you fill me with your spirit to, to, to live the life Jesus has called me to live by the power of your spirit? 
Because the first shift we need to make is, friends, from leading with words to, to leading with our actions. And then there's a second shift I, I think we need to make. I'll just call it this. From selling to discerning. Say the phrase, would you? From selling to discerning. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you this, my own experience. For, for me growing up, that, that term evangelism, when I kind of, the images that came to mind for me growing up, it, it either meant walking with somebody through the, like the four spiritual laws booklet, something like that, or kind of guiding a conversation, really almost manipulating it towards kind of planned upon points of discussion. That true for any of you? And I really, I think there's a reason I felt that way. In fact, one scholar notes this. The paradigm that dominated the past century might be called evangelism as closing the deal on a sales call. Many Christians still think they have to dump their content on someone and then close the deal or they haven't been successful. Our image of the evangelist has gotten twisted into that of a spiritual salesperson. Resonate with any of you? And again, I want you to know this. My point in this is not to criticize those who, who kind of do that or who use certain evangelistic tools. Because really, at least they are sharing Christ, right? But I think it's worth asking, is there also another way? And I'd say yes, and I think that's where we need to make a shift. Really from selling to discerning. It, it, it's shifting from asking, okay, how do I convince this person? That person you have on your mind? It's shifting from thinking, how do I convince that person to asking, how is God already at work in their life? Now think, if Jesus is our model in this, in these three relationships, and, and if he's our model for evangelism, what was his approach? Well, let's look at what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. In, in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, and, and verse 19, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but what he sees his Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Can I paraphrase that a bit? Jesus is saying, when I discern the Father at work, I join him in that. that. That's what I do. Can I give you an encouragement in this? To put that another way? It's not all up to you. Isn't that good news? It is not all up to you. You are just called to be a messenger of the good news. And to encourage in that, as Friedrich von Hugel, he was an Austrian theologian, I loved how he put it. He said this, God is always prior have that picture in your mind. God is always prior. Meaning, friends, whoever you meet, God is already at work in their life. That, that per person you had, that picture of that person you had in the forefront of your mind, know this. God is already at work in their life, wooing them, drawing them to himself. You know, likely the most kind of explicitly evangelistic book of the Bible is the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And I'll tell you, it could just as accurately be entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
Because really, as the disciples in the early church started to spread the good news about Jesus, it was like the Holy Spirit. You could read of him preparing the way, going on, moving ahead of them before they got to individuals. So we read stories like in Acts 8, where, where Philip encounters this Ethiopian servant whose heart had been stirred by God to, to consider spiritual things in questions. So when Philip starts talking about Jesus, the Ethiopian's heart was already prepared for that. So this Ethiopian, and to use a term from scripture, he was a person of peace. Heard us use that term before? What, what that simply means, a person of peace is somebody who's already stirred towards spiritual matters, is asking kind of significant questions. That was this person. Or we read in Acts 10, we go through a number of examples. In Acts 10, Peter's prompted by God to go to the home of the Roman centurion, a, a Gentile. And at this great scene where Peter starts sharing about Jesus, before he even finishes sharing the story, the Roman centurion and all in his household are filled with the Holy Spirit because God was at work ahead of him. So I want us to be encouraged by this. Friends, as, as we walk with friends who are spiritual seekers, maybe skeptics even, in, in those times be sensitive to the legions of the Holy Spirit as you walk with them. And, and do this, ask some questions. And, and, and listen for how God is already at work in their life, how their hearts are being stirred. Listen, discern. Because that's a second shift we need to make. From an attitude of selling, just verbalizing constantly, to discerning, to, to listening. All right? And then a third shift. We need to shift increasingly from programs to relationships. You say the phrase? From programs to relationships. I so want us to catch this. Understand that the good news of Jesus, it has to be relational. Again, in the book of Acts, when you read through Acts, what you find is evangelism doesn't primarily happen through programs. Have you noticed that? It, it doesn't primarily happen through departments. It didn't primarily happen through events. Most commonly it happened kind of naturally, organically, through one's oikos. Which makes you ask, what's an oikos, right? It should, I hope. Well, this is what we read in Acts chapter 16. Here's the story, this great image. Paul and Silas, if you remember, in Acts 16, they're in prison in Philippi, and there's an earthquake. The prison doors swing open. The jailer wakes up, sees the doors open, and thinks he's a dead man because the prisoners have escaped. But Paul and Silas are still there, and this is what happens, what they say, Acts 16, verse 31. And they said to the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your what? Your, your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Now understand this, that those two words translated as house and household, they're actually the same Greek word, rooted Greek word. It's a word, oikos. Want to say it with me? I, I want you to remember it. It is oikos. Now, when you think of household or house, what we tend to think of is kind of an immediate, a nuclear family, Right? But understand, an oikos back in this day, in the day of scripture, even in Acts 16, that wasn't just your immediate family, it was your parents as well, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles. Additionally, it could include your employees, your boss even, your friends, even your business associates. So your, an oikos was really kind of a tight-knit set of relationships. And it was understood that when you became a follower of Jesus, 
You are now a steward of your unique oikos. You are a steward of your relationships. Okay, so that's why we often say and remind ourselves of this reality. That, that friends, you are uniquely positioned to share the good news of Christ with those around you. Uniquely positioned, whether it's through your words or your actions. You are a steward of your oikos. Now, now look at this. There, there was a North American study which looked at how individuals came to the point of turning in faith and, and following Jesus. They, they surveyed 14,000 people, asking simply of them, how did you become connected to a church and, and come to faith in Jesus? Listen to their findings. They, they found that somewhere about 1% to 2% of the respondents said they either saw or kind of read about a church, thought it looked interesting, started attending, and through that came to faith in Jesus. One to two percent. Okay, what about visitation? Well, secondly, kind of people doing, going door to door or maybe sending out a mail or inviting strangers. Five percent got connected to a local congregation and came to faith in Jesus that way. Five percent. What is so interesting about the study, though, is that by far the greatest category was this. I was invited by a friend or relative. 80 to 90% got connected to local church and through that became a follower of Jesus by the simple invitation of through a relationship, friend, family member, coworker. They got connected to the church body and were led to faith in Jesus. 80 to 90%. So let's understand, friend, that is the power of an oikos, of your relationships. Now, if you're wondering this, okay, so, so where do I start in this? How, how do I start reaching that? <laughs> and here's a great question. What do you love doing? What do you love doing? And as a starting place, just do that and invite others to join with you in it. I mean, just for example here, we have a photography flat class that we've had because one of us here in our church family who loves photography said, let's just invite others to join in this. We actually have a women's fitness class because one of us who's passionate about health and fitness said, I want to invite others. But, but understand, it, it doesn't happen to happen within the walls of this church by any means. Like one of our small groups, they love motorcycle riding. And, and so they invite friends to go riding with them. So what is it for you? Maybe for you, you'd say, you know what I love, really? I, I love cooking or scrapbooking or hiking or photography. Maybe it's trail riding or weightlifting or a book club. And I just want you to understand this. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be Christian cooking. <laughs> or even a Christian book club. Or it doesn't have to be Christian photos. It, it, understand, it's not a program. It's, it's just walking in relationships, life on life, living out things we enjoy with others. It is that shift from, from programs to, to relationships. Make sense? Now, if you're wondering, okay, so do we still do kind of programs? Do we still have outreach events? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's both and. For example, that's why we have our Alpha Ministry, a, a great place, if you want to be part of it, to, to just ask questions about spiritual matters. Additionally, maybe you know that for many years we had this kind of event for kids and families on the night of Halloween. It, it's called Pumpkin Palooza. How great a name is that? 
Okay, so, so why do we do that? Both as an alternative to, for trick-or-treating, but also we do it as a connecting point with the families of our community around us whose kids are trick-or-treating. So it's a way we can connect with them, reach out to them. So as they're out trick-or-treating, invite them in. This place is going to be cleared out on, on that night, and there's going to be games here, events, candies for kids, as a way of connecting them with us. It, there's going to be pumpkin carving. You'll see pumpkins around the place. You might want to do one of your favorite pastor. Don't. So we still have community events. We still have programs, outreach programs. But let's understand, our primary focus is what? Relationships. It, it's through you. And on that, let me just give you an exhortation. A, a, real, a reality is, I mean, we can build trust and friendship with people and never get to the point of an invitation or a challenge. And never get to the point of kind of sharing about our own faith in Jesus and, and what he offers. And let's know this, in living missionally in evangelism, risk is inescapable. It is. I mean, we're not loving others if we walk in friendship with them and never communicate the greatest hope and good news the world has ever heard. At some point, we need to verbalize the good news in one way or another. And, and, and be encouraged in this. I mean, I don't know if you know the name of Reg Bibby. He's a Canadian sociologist. Not long ago, he did a study, and he found that 75 to 80% of Canadians said they were not connected to a Christian community. 75 to 80% were not. But of those, 50% of those expressed an openness to greater involvement. And, and Bibby noted this in his study. People are not looking for churches they are looking for ministry, meaning they are looking for connections, relationships, and, and we can help them connect. And, and be clear, be freed in this, friends, as well. If we share the good news of Jesus with somebody and they reject what we share, they're, they're no less our friend, right? But we just naturally want them to understand the hope that we have in this. It's a third shift we need to make, from, from programs to relationships. And that leads to the final shift I want to touch on. And the fourth shift, we'll just call it from arguments to testimony. Can you say the phrase? From arguments to testimony. Okay, and again, meaning what? Let me put this another way. The gospel, it, it has to be personal. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. It, it, is, it is good to understand and, and to be able to articulate the reasonable basis for our faith, because it is. It's, it's a good thing to be able to explain the faith we have. It is good to be an apologist, to, to be able to counter arguments that others might have against faith or the reality of God. But I'll tell you, first and most importantly, as you and I go out, the gospel needs to resonate first in, in our hearts. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it has to be real in your life. You, you really have to root and secure your joy, your, your hope, your values, your strength in the gospel first for, for yourself. Because as one writer puts it, friends, you cannot commend what you do not cherish. You cannot commend what you do not cherish. And I know this. <laughs> 
it is so easy to feel inadequate in this mission, right? And here's the great news. <laughs> you are supposed to feel inadequate. <laughs> That's the good news. Because on our own, we are inadequate. That, that's why we're called to depend on the Holy Spirit. Neither you and I nor anybody possesses the persuasive powers on our own to be able to shift somebody from spiritual death to life in Christ. You, you and I, what we're simply called to do is, is to give testimony. I mean, picture a courtroom if you want to, if that's a helpful picture for you. Because we know this, as you view a courtroom trial, as a witness is called forward, they aren't expected to be an expert on every subject, right? They're simply called and asked to share. Okay, this is what I know. This is my story. There's a great picture of this in the Gospel of John again. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples through the city of Jerusalem, and it's on the Sabbath. And Jesus reminds them again, I'm the light of the world. And while he's sharing this with them, right near them, there's this blind beggar sitting right by. And so to demonstrate the reality that Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus, in this vivid scene, he bends down, spits in the dirt, takes the mud, puts it on a blind guy's eyes. And he heals him by, by his, from his blindness as he does that. And understand that this blind guy doesn't know at all who Jesus is. Hadn't, apparently hadn't met or heard of him before. Now the religious leaders, they get in an uproar about because, because Jesus healed on the Sabbath where no work is to be done. Can you imagine? So the religious leaders, they call in this blind beggar, formerly blind, and with kind of great pomp, they question about Jesus, wanting him to, this guy to declare that Jesus is a sinner. And listen to this response in John 9, 25. The beggar answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. Read it with me. Though I was blind, now I see. Don't you love that? Man, I don't have a clue, guys. Sinner or not, I, and really, I don't care. This is what I know. I was blind, and now I see. I mean, understand, be, be, before you can be a witness, you, you really have to have a testimony. You, you have to, you and I have to be able to say, like, kind of like that blind beggar. I, man, I don't know all the answers, but this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what he's done in my life. This, this is how he's given me hope, life, a, a sense of purpose. This is what he's done for me. Because I'll tell you, unless the gospel is kind of personal to you, unless you authentically have been changed, you're going to short-circuit evangelism. Because the reality will be, even regardless of what you say, your hopes, your dreams, your values, securities, they're going to be rooted in something else. And, and, and so you understand, you might have all the arguments for Christ, but your life will just be shouting another reality. This is what Brennan Manning wrote on this point. Listen, the greatest single cause of atheism today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So friends, as you walk in relationships with others and, and, and come to the point of sharing the good news with them about Jesus, that, that gospel, it, it has to be personal. We, we need to shift from just focusing on arguments to, to focusing on testimony. Four shifts. So let, let's take all these together and ask this. Well, what if evangelism, what if sharing your faith 
just meant being yourself. How good would that be? And understand, who knows in this, by the power of the Spirit, friends, who knows how God might use you? Just to close, I, I just read the story this week of a woman named Karen. Karen was a follower of Christ. She had a good friend whose name was Liz. And, and Liz was not by any means a follower of Jesus. In, in fact, at that time, she, she was a best-known radio personality in America, and, and she had lived a, a really wild life, a really wild life, no interest in God. And in fact, on, on her radio station, Howard Stern was the morning personality. She was the evening personality. And one day, picture this, Howard Stern said to Liz, you really need to clean up your life. <laughs> You, you know, if Howard Stern is telling you that, you, you've got a pretty wild life. I mean, a little on the wild side. But, but because Liz had been re really burned by so many men, her heart had been broken so many times, she also became just a militant feminist. And I want to underscore a militant feminist. And so imagine being her friend. You are Karen. Karen easily could have thought over the years, and I tried, she's just not interested. But Karen kept walking in friendship, loving Liz because she cared for her. And periodically, she'd invite her to her church. And one day, for whatever reason, after a very long time, Liz said, okay, I'll go to church one time, one time only. So she goes to church one time with her friend. Can you guess what the pastor was teaching on? The pastor just had to be teaching on that passage in Ephesians 5 where it says... <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands. <laughs> Not a great place to begin with a militant feminist, right? So Liz got a little uptight, a little tick, a little angry, understandably. But, but thankfully, she continued to listen. And she actually heard what comes right after that phrase in that passage. And it's a phrase that often gets overlooked. Because really, you see, the, the next part of that passage says, and husbands, you sacrifice yourself. You give yourself for your spouse. Just like Jesus gave himself, sacrificed himself for the church, died for the church. That's the model for you, husbands. People tend to overlook that second part, right? Just to make sure we're clear on this, which spouse is called to give up their life? Somebody say husbands. Go ahead. You'd be right. According to the scripture, that's what it says. Well, when Liz heard that part, she leaned over her friend Karen and said, understand, with a little cynicism, I'd gladly give myself to a man if I knew he'd die for me. And her friend Karen leaned back to her and said, Liz, there is a man who loved you so much he died for you. His name is Jesus. And that's how much he loves you. And, and that started a journey for Liz that that letter to finally let her guard down and really she surrendered her life eventually to God and love, became a follower of Jesus. And now today Liz, Liz Curtis Higgs is this internationally known Christian author and, and speaker. And very fittingly, she wrote a book called Bad Girls of the Bible. <laughs> a good book. <laughs> you never know how God will use your simple witness. And so let's think about this as we move in this year. Think about it. At Southview, we exist really for the sake of non-members. We exist for those who are out there. 
those who are adrift in life, those who are searching, those who are not connected, those who are lost around us, who, who though they don't know it, they desperately need us to share with them, to demonstrate to them the reality that Christ has come. There's a new kingdom, and we can be part of it for eternity. So will each one of us really say, will we say collectively this year, Father, yes, in our inadequacy, fill us with your spirit. Take us, set us apart for that purpose. As we together this year seek to live up, in, out. Because friends understand, that's what we're doing here. Amen? So can I pray to that end? Will you pray with me? And Father, as we read of these realities, and as these pictures of our friends, family members, coworkers are in our mind, we pray, Father, by your grace, would you use us to, to lead them to the hope that there is in Jesus. Hey, prompt us, Father, to walk in grace with a winsomeness, even apart from any words we share, to demonstrate the reality that you are the God of creation, you are the God of love. And, and so we pray, Father, with literally thousands around us who long to know of Jesus. Guide us, we pray this year, Father, by the grace and power of your spirit to demonstrate the reality that the king has come. There's a new kingdom available so that all might come to know him. This we pray, Father, in the authority of his holy name. And again, all God's people say, amen.